Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Amanda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be speaking to Mark Anderson about his book, Down the Warpath to the Cedars, Indians' First Battles in the Revolution, published by University of Oklahoma Press this year in 2022. In the book, Um, Mark flips the usual perspective on this particular engagement in the American Revolutionary War and focuses on its native participants, their motivations, battlefield conduct, and the event's impact in their world. Um, In this way, the book does a lot of great work to establish and explain the role of Native Americans um, in the northern aspect of the American Revolutionary War theater and really provides um, the kind of first look Uh, particularly from this perspective of this part of Revolutionary War history. Um, So I certainly learned a lot from this, and I think there's a lot um, to be brought into the literature from this work. So thank you, Mark Anderson, for being with us today. Thank you very much for hosting me, Miranda. So I wonder if you could start us off, please, by introducing yourself, your background, and explain how you came to write this book. Oh, it would be my pleasure. Uh, I'm somebody who, uh, like many people I'm sure you interview, has had a lifelong interest in history. Um, when I finished my undergraduate studies, I went to become a United States Air Force officer instead of uh, going into academia, but I always kept that passion for history. And then as time went on, I started uh, looking into possibility of doing research and writing to, to channel that passion. And... Uh, really got into the uh, publication, writing books by, uh, as I was inspired by what was going on in the early 2000s as far as American foreign policy went with Afghanistan and Iraq trying to bring democracy to those countries. And it reminded me of uh, this little episode that happened in the American Revolutionary War where the uh, rebel American colonists invaded Canada as an effort to bring them freedom and bring them into the uh, United Colonies at that time that were in the Continental Congress. Uh, what was originally maybe an article interest uh, became a book uh, uh, project as I saw that I wasn't really happy with the historiography that was out there. It was uh, mostly dated, uh, some detail and accuracy errors, and, and uh, it didn't really look into the causes behind the this American invasion of Canada and the Revolutionary War, and I focused on as uh, a war of liberation. Um, so uh, that went well. I was happy with what I what I uh, produced with that. Uh, so I kept going. Uh, my second book, still staying in Canada and the American Revolution, focused on essentially a micro history, looking at two different people whose. Uh, lives overlapped for a couple months during the American invasion of Canada. And then uh, I was kind of thinking maybe I'd wrap up my research in Canada uh, with a third book. 
And so I started off uh, with the, the intent of writing a, a detailed battle history, kind of breaking it down to all the, the moving parts and, and what's going on. Um, the Battle of the Cedars was one of the battles in uh, the American invasion of Canada, and it seemed to have decent sources. And there were a couple controversial points uh, about it, uh, whether there was an Indian massacre that occurred there and uh, how responsible the American field commanders on the, the scene were for the uh, uh, shockingly bad performance of the American troops in this battle and their surrender. Um, so I started off with that as my research project, but uh, the questions that I started peeling back on led me to a much more expansive project, uh, as you talked about in the introduction, looking at the Native American world. And it's much more than uh, just a battle history. It's social, political, cultural exploration of the American Indian world before, during, after uh, with the Cedars as kind of a, a snapshot uh, point to, to look at. Mm. I, you'll not be surprised to hear that you are definitely not the first person who goes. So I thought this was going to be an article and then it kept going. Um, so that's a very common story and makes a lot of sense. Um, there is quite a lot uh, in this book, as you said, the sort of the battle in the title is almost a kind of framing point, um, but there's a lot of other things going on. Um, and one of the things that's most interesting from a historiographical point of view is you show quite clearly um, how forgotten these particular events um, have become, that they're really not continued in the literature and the historiography, um, and particularly the military events, like what actually was the Battle of the Cedars. So given that that forms a really important basis for kind of our understanding of the wider socio-political things that you detail in the book, can you give us a brief overview of what actually happened in this instance um, before we move on? Certainly. Um, so time-wise, uh, the American invasion of Canada happens very early in the Revolutionary War, uh, within the first year before the uh, what are then the United Colonies of English North America uh, have even declared independence to become the United States. Um, and there was this lingering question of Canada to the north, which had been New France, uh, but conquered during the French and Indian War and was now part of the British Empire. Um, geographically, for those who aren't necessarily familiar with uh, Canada or uh, need a, a refresher of the historical time frame that we're talking about. Uh, at this point uh, in 1775, 1776, uh, the settled part of Canada is the province of Quebec uh, on the St. Lawrence River, which runs southwest to northeast from the American Great Lakes out to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and then in the vicinity of Montreal, there's a river that goes off to the south, the Richelieu River, which connects to Lake Champlain, which with some portages connects to the Hudson River down in New York City. So there's a north-south corridor that links the New England and New York colonies with the province of Quebec. Um, but it is uh, not settled by the Euro-colonials really uh, to any extent in that borderlands area between them at the time of the revolution. The St. Louis is a huge uh, line of communication, transportation corridor. And the province of Quebec really has two major cities, uh, Montreal in the southwest, um, wh where the uh, Ottawa River and the St. Lawrence River meet. There. Montreal is actually on an island. Um, 
And then on the northeast end of the province, there's the, the capital, provincial capital of Quebec City, uh, which is really looking east to the Atlantic, where Montreal is looking west to the fur trade in the upcountry. Um, so given that uh, the province of Quebec is mostly French and Catholic, uh, there are some questions about how they might be integrated in with what are otherwise English, mostly Protestant colonies to the south as this revolution is breaking out. Um, so while th what's going on in the 13 colonies is pretty complex between loyalists and uh, the rebel patriots, uh, it's even more complex in Canada as you have not only the French Catholics, but also um, Anglo-Protestant British settlers that have come in since the conquest. Um, at the time I was just wrapping up my book, an interesting book um, came out on the American Civil War in the Southwest uh, by Megan Nelson called The Three-Cornered War. And uh, as I was looking at the Cedars, it's uh, a lot more like a, an octagon or a decagon as far as all the different parties that are influencing what's going on in and around Canada. Because not only do you have the rebels and the loyalists and the French Canadians and Anglo-Protestants, but you have all these Indian nations that are not homogenous or monolithic. They've got each got their own perspectives. And so uh, they're, they're influencing what's going on. Um, kind of taking a, a step, a tangential step off of uh, the main question. There's two major Indian confederations that are involved in the nor Northern frontier borderlands area. Um, many of the listeners are probably familiar with the Iroquois, Iroquois, Haudenosaunee, six nations at this time. Um, they're in the region west of Lake Champlain uh, out to the Great Lakes. Um, from east to west, we've got the, the Mohawks, the uh, Oneidas, the Tuscaroras, the Onondagas, the Cayugas, and the Senecas. Each of those will have uh, different uh, levels of um, play in what's going on. Um, and they're pretty powerful. They're the, they're the uh, confederation that both the British and the Americans are looking to influence the most. But there's a second confederation that uh, was settled in the 1600s, early 1700s, along the St. Lawrence River by the French as mission villages. And uh, the, each of these villages uh, is uh, anchored around Christianity, mission villages, and uh, they're settled on strategic points coming into the St. Lawrence uh, Valley. And those nations, by the time the British have conquered Canada, uh, are identifying themselves as the seven nations. So they'll be the other big player in what's going on as far as Indian players go. And then there's this other uh, tribe or nation in the Great Lakes area called the Mississaugas who will play a smaller role as well. So jumping back to the question about the battle, um, really starts with the American decision to invade Canada. Um, there's some concern about traditionally, uh, whenever there's been colonial wars, attacks have come from Canada on the New England and New York frontiers. So they want to prevent that defensively. But as I said uh, before, they're really also interested in bringing the Canadians into the Confederation or the Continental Congress to show North American unity uh, against what they feel are uh, British ministerial oppressions. Lovely. Thank you for laying that out. We're, we're going to get into, I think, some of the military details as we go on. Um, but that's a really wonderful sort of scene setting for us. Um, and I'm particularly intrigued by this idea of the sort of octagon of all the people getting involved. Um, 
because that's quite apparent at the beginning of the book, just how many actors there are that are quite influential um, and that there's not really a dominant, you know, there's a lot of things that are sort of up for grabs in terms of territory, in terms of economics, in terms of political influence. Um, So kind of looking at both sides of this, starting off, why did both British and American rebel leaders want Native Americans to fight with them against the other? What was the motivation on the sort of colonial side for seeking out Native American allies? For the um, British who are really most interested, um, they had a very limited military force in North America, particularly in Canada at the time. And the Indians, uh, Indian allies were a way to offset that. Um, they were The British were working against uh, the time and distance of the Atlantic Ocean as far as uh, getting reinforcements um, where the Indians were already there at hand on what could be a vulnerable uh, American colonial frontier. Um, and the, the British had invested uh, significantly in relationships, particularly, but also in resources uh, from the time of the French and Indian War up until just before the Revolutionary War in the Northern, what they called the Northern Indian Department. Uh, Sir William Johnson was uh, tremendously powerful. He was the British voice to the Indians, and he basically interpreted what was going on in the Indian world and communicated that back to England. And he was uh, closely tied with the Mohawks in the Six Nations and, in fact, had uh, a Mohawk wife and several children that were uh, part of the Mohawk nation. So there was this close relationship with the Johnson family. and the Indians, so that there was an expectation that these relationships and resources would come back in return as, as this war broke out. Um, Sir William Johnson uh, dies just before the American Revolution starts, however, and his a nephew, Guy Johnson, inherits the role of, of superintendent. He's going to be a player in what goes on in and around the Cedars. Um, there's a conflict of uh, policy, however, between British leaders in North America, the governor in the province of Quebec, Guy Carleton, uh, sees this revolutionary war as a war for the American hearts and minds. And he thinks that if the Indians are, quote, unleashed on uh, the colonials, that it's going to drive them away as opposed to bringing them back to the the king. So he he wants to use the Indians only as defensive allies. Whereas Guy Johnson from the Johnson family is amongst those who really wants to uh, seek a quick end of the war by releasing or releasing, quote, the Indians uh, to unleash terror on the frontier settlements and uh, essentially get an offensive victory through terror. So there's this tension within the British as far as that goes in bringing Native Americans along to fight with them. Mm. The other side of the story is the Americans at this point as the war breaks out, really don't have the resources to be worrying about uh, the Native American allies, and they certainly don't want Native American enemies. So they are actively seeking Indian neutrality. Um, The concern is that if the war keeps going on, the Indians are probably going to get drawn in, and at some point they might decide that it's better to bring the Indians in as allies rather than have them choose to take the British side. But 
given their, the limitation of resources by the rebel Americans, they can't, they can barely keep a, a, a minimal amount of trade going and certainly can't provide the wealth of uh, gifts, trade goods, and uh, perhaps money that is typically involved with bringing in Native Americans as allies. Uh, the Americans do achieve a particular di diplomatic success right on the eve of the invasion of Canada. So the invasion of Canada happens in September 1775. At the end of August, they have a uh, major conference in the city of Albany with the Six Nations, mostly arranged by the Oneidas, who are leaning more towards the Americans, but are really strong neutrality advocates at this point. And so they secure a treaty for Six Nations neutrality that really frees them up to launch their invasion into Canada. And there's also a pro-American -ele pro element from some of these nations that is reaching out to the Americans, particularly from the Ganawaga Seven Nations uh, nation in, that's near Montreal, who some of their ambassadors are actually encouraging an American invasion, uh, promising support. Some of them even suggesting that uh, Ganawaga warriors will join the Americans, even though they haven't really been solicited. So that's that, that's the picture. The British are more interested in bringing the Indians along as allies, where the Americans are more interested in just maintaining their neutrality because they can't afford to manage uh, Indian allies at this point. And what about on the Native American side? What sort of are the kind of considerations going on about hmm, joining up with the British or the Americans? Um, and in fact, the to spoiler alert for history that's already happened, um, Native Americans end up on both sides. So how does that kind of play out internally? Uh, so obviously, as we've alluded to, there's many sides to this. We've got nine in Indian nations that we're talking about in two major confederacies. And then within each of these uh, polities, there's many factions. The uh, Native American political structure um, is directly influential on this. Um, at village, tribe, nation level, they uh, achieve make decisions by consensus. There's no, not really coercive members, uh, coercive methods within their governmental structure. Um, and their end goal is really internal harmony more than a foreign policy. So when uh, no village or nation or confederacy makes a council decision on a specific action, then factions within that group are free to execute their own policy, whether it be diplomatic or military. And, and we see that from the very beginning of what uh, develops into the Cedars is that you've got these different parties going off, uh, engaging with the Americans or with the British. Um, I use terminology of uh, historians John Parmenter and Mark Robinson that have described this as active engagement or active neutrality. And that framework really helps explain what is otherwise an incomprehensibly scattershot uh, Indian engagement uh, that's going on there. Within the pro-British factions, I've already alluded to the Mohawk uh, from the Six Nations that have these family links to the Johnson family. Um, so at least that portion of the Mohawk Nation is very inclined to be pro-British. On the Western side of the Six Nations, we've got the Onondagas, Cayugas, and Senecas, who, uh, if you look, look at the map, they're very far west as far as trade goods coming from the Atlantic coast. They are very dependent on European trade goods coming down the St. Lawrence and into the Great Lakes uh, to keep their uh, 17th or 18th century 
economic trade going that they have become uh, very comfortable with. Uh, and the Seneca Nation as well uh, is considered the guardians of the Western door of the Six Nations Confederacy. So they are very uh, prone to going to war. So they, they are amongst the most receptive to British policy and see that perhaps as a, as a way to fulfill their role within the Confederacy. Uh, in the Seven Nations, there's another village. I talked about Ganawaga, which is pro-American uh, more. There's a second village, confusingly, called Kanesatake, which sounds kind of similar. It's uh, west of Montreal, uh, where the Ottawa River comes into that, the St. Lawrence Valley. And based on their position, uh, a lot of their power comes from that trade coming in from the Ottawa River. So they are closely tied to whatever colonial power is ruling Montreal at the time. They were closely tied to the French before the, the British conquest, and now they're closely tied economically and militarily to the, the British. So as uh, the American invasion of Canada plays out, you know, there's a fall campaign that goes on, and the Gennesatagis are the most dedicated British allies from these seven nations. Um, mm. So those are the key pro-British players. Um the pro-American side, uh, the Oneidas, as I talked about, they helped arrange this Albany conference that secured Six Nations neutrality, uh, and they're cooperating closely with the Americans. They have um, religious ties through a missionary, Samuel Kirkland, um, and that are essentially become you know expanded to become political ties to who have become the American rebels. Um, and they're really strong advocates for neutrality. So there are a couple of key points in the American invasion of Canada where Oneida diplomats go to talk to the Seven Nations and essentially secure their neutrality at critical points that help influence the campaign. Uh, while they're not really contributing any significant number of warriors to anything that's going on. And then the key players uh, from the pro-American side uh, on the, from the Seven Nations are the Ganawaga Nation. And they're the council fire for this seven nations. So this is the, the political meeting place for the, the Confederacy. They have a history of being fiercely independent. Even the French uh, didn't like how, uh, much, how independent they considered themselves. And they're in the strategic position near the Richelieu River uh, and St. Lawrence River intersection. And they've traditionally used that position to cross imperial lines and engage with New York as well as the, the French who had been there before. Um, so they have they get a lot of power by playing in that middle role and don't really want to see necessarily either side get wiped out, but definitely want to keep their ties with the Americans. And then there's this really interesting link that the Ganawagas have in that uh, there's tradition amongst the northern native nations that you take captives in battle and you may adopt them. And once they become adopted, they are full-fledged members of the community. So several of the pro-American Ganawaga leaders were men that had been captured at various stages of their lives as children or as young adults in battles or raids, taken back to Ganawaga and adopted. And now they, they're amongst the most pro-American uh, representatives of that nation. And then finally, the nation in the, in the few years preceding the revolution started sending students to uh, Dartmouth College, which was established as a school for training Indians, um, heavily really Protestant religious emphasis, 
but uh, the Ganawagas see that as a way to educate their youth and prepare them for to be leaders in this modern, in, in their terms, world. So there's this close connection to Dartmouth as well that helps make them pro-American. So um, lots thank of players, you. lots yeah, of interest. No, thank you for explaining all of that. I think it uh, makes it very clear to listeners when you talked earlier about the kind of octagon of lots of different players, like you weren't kidding. Um, there's a lot going on here. And I think that's what makes it quite interesting um, how in the book you play out these kinds of different interactions and show what was um, happening that um, some of the kind of stock ideas we have about, oh, well, the British were good at this or powerful here or not um, in this time period, there, there was actually a lot of kind of fluctuating uncertainty and a lot of instances where at least from reading your book, it seemed like there were a number of negotiations where of everyone who may have been in the room, it was the uh, Native American politicians that sort of were the most informed and organized and had a goal. Um, it didn't always seem to be the case um, on the American or British side necessarily. Um, yes. And even after kind of these decisions were made, right, the kind of the pitches were sent, you know, come fight with me or actually, mm, I think I'd rather throw my lot in with you. You know, there's all this sort of jockeying for alliance formation. Um even after that kind of some of those alliances were made, they didn't necessarily go so well, or they were kind of uneasy alliances. Um, and I was wondering if you could sort of talk us through where some of those points of friction were, um, perhaps with reference to events on September 6th, 1775. Uh, yes. Um, so that's, that's a great example of where these relationships uh, come under stress. Um, the American invasion happened at the very beginning of September, um, 1775, the army, American army initially lands on an Island in the Richelieu river. And the first, uh, challenge to them getting any farther is a British post called Fort St. John's just inside the Quebec border. So on September 6th, uh, an American force tries to land and, and start to head towards this Fort St. John's, but they are met, uh, by an enemy force, the British in this fort, send out uh, 60 to 90 Indian allies and some British Indian department officers to go meet this American uh, advance. And um, I talked about how the, the British were sensitive of, um, under Go Governor Guy Carlson's policy of, of trying to practice strategic restraint, only uses them for the defensive. Well, now the Americans have come to them. They're ready to use their, their Indian allies. Um, what happens is uh, the, this engagement happens. The Indians uh, inflict some losses on the Americans. The Americans inflict some losses on the Indians. But the Indians are particularly unhappy because once this hap battle starts, none of the British come out of the fort to help them. And they've only been given a very limited supply of ammunition. So they're not able to, to press any advantage and feel abandoned uh, by the British. Um, so they come back from, from this engagement on the 6th of, of September and uh, express their displeasure to the British commander at the fort, and many of them depart at that point. Also, um, we'll probably talk to it in more detail later, but a good Indian war chief in their culture does not take losses. That's, that's part of their, their war fighting culture is uh, you don't achieve victory by taking losses. Uh, losses are look bad on a war chief. So uh, the, the Indian leaders in this battle 
don't come off looking good either. And then the Americans come four days later uh, on a second attempt, um, and a similar battle happens. And in this case, the Indians take more losses and lose one of their uh, French-Canadian interpreter friends. Um, so at the, after this second battle on the 10th of September, almost all the Indians have left Fort St. John's. There's only a handful there from different groups. Um, and as the fall campaign plays out, uh, the only the Seven Nations Gennesetages, who I talked about before that were particularly dedicated to the British, show up every time that Governor Carleton calls for allies. But then as they sit inactive, not being used a whole lot, they'll tend to filter back to their village until there's another call. Um, and there's also this underlying concern about fighting other Indians that's playing on the Native American mind. There's a, a policy of tacit neutrality that's clear amongst most of the Northern uh, Native nations that even though they will take different sides in these colonial wars, when it comes to fighting, they'll find ways to avoid actually fighting Indian on Indian, uh, whether that's one side dropping out, both arranging to kind of disappear at the time of the battle or shaping the battle so, so that, that, that this doesn't play out. Um, so this is playing in the background uh, as well. And, and the British um, talked about their concerns about uh, Governor Guy Carlton's concerns about using them defensively. There's also this concern that they have limited control over Indian allies once they get in battle. The experiences of the French and Indian War, both with Indian allies to the British, but particularly with Indian allies to the French, um, brought out lessons that essentially your Indian allies are going to be likely to commit atrocities. And in part because of this tacit neutrality, they, they're pretty unreliable. They're not necessarily going to stick around and do all that the British might want from them. So there's this tension with the British and the Indians as well. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I'd like to get a little bit more into sort of Native American uh, fighting culture and war. We, we've spoken about some of the key points, um, but could you maybe explain to us what parallel warfare was? So parallel warfare um, was uh, really laid out as a, a theory by Peter McLeod. Uh, in talking about Native American uh, relations with uh, the European colonials in the French and Indian War. Um, and really, it, in a nutshell, it is that Indians were allies in, in warfare, fighting for their own purposes, by their own methods, and they're not just auxiliary forces to the uh, European colonials. Um, the British, French, English, North Americans, perhaps less so the Canadians, are fighting largely with European strategies for European objectives, using European operations and tactics, and what there is of the European laws of war at this point in time. Whereas Indians are coming in um, often with uh, conglomerations of different Indian nations with varied strategies and objectives that don't necessarily align that well with what's going on with their colonial allies. And that when you get down to the, the role of in an individual warrior, um, their objectives are particularly different from a Euro-colonial soldiers. The, the warrior is really looking for opportunities to demonstrate his bravery and fighting skill, building prestige back in his community. And a key method of doing that is through the physical spoils of war. Um, from the least regarded to the highest regarded, we've got plunder. So any military goods, clothing, treasures that they might take from uh, the enemy to scalps, 
um, which are a measure that they've had some sort of battlefield conquest, to the most uh, meaningful spoil of war is actually a live captive. Talked before about how some of these might be adopted, others might be kept in a sort of enslaved servant status, or there's always a possibility, and, and what bothered the uh, American minds the most is uh, potential of being ritually killed in Indian practices um, uh, once you've been captured. Um, so with these different ways of war, the Indians are uh, casualty averse. They look to use mobile raids or ambushes. Uh, they're not they're not really favoring any sort of siege warfare, and they travel logistically light. So when they are fighting, they're really dependent on the British to keep them supplied. And they have a tendency to leave once their own objectives are met, or they see that opportunities for success have dwindled. Um, so the British really dislike the realities of parallel war for all, all those reasons. And there's a couple key points in the French and Indian War that uh, I refer to within the book um, at Fort William Henry and Fort Oswego, where the British and the French arrange surrenders, but then there's Indian massacres uh, of the prisoners, British and American, that have surrendered. Um, the degree of massacre in that is addressed in its own historiography, but that's definitely in the collective memory of both the British and the Americans as this is going on. So the British understanding what they do of this parallel warfare do feel some responsibility to try to limit the excesses of their allies once they've decided to bring them into the field. Thank you for laying that out. Um, both it's interesting, obviously, in its own right, but also, as we will see, um, comes to play out a lot in kind of the events that you go on to chronicle. Um, so before we sort of get into the aftermath um, or the contested bits, um, we've gotten chronologically to the um, initial American invasion of Canada, um, but the title of the book talks about the Cedars. So could you outline for us a little bit of kind of just the basic facts of the engagement at Fort Cedars? Uh, certainly. So uh, taking a step uh, back towards that, that fall campaign in 1775 with the American invasion. It initially has a lot of success. Um, they take Fort Cedars, although it takes some time to do that. I mean, not Fort Cedars, Fort St. John's, which is, was the border fort. And uh, from there, they move on Montreal. Uh, Go Go Governor Guy Carleton takes the last of his forces and evacuates to go to Quebec City because he really doesn't have the means to oppose the Americans anymore. So Montreal is surrendered to the Americans. They occupy that. And from there, they press on to, to pursue uh, Guy Carleton up to Quebec City, establish a siege there. And things seem to be going pretty well until the very end of 1775 when uh, the American forces try to take Quebec City and fail and are left with a very weak force. Uh, a lot of their troops have enlistments that expire at the end of the year. So there's this very weak uh, force, American force in Canada, that now is not in a great position and is looking for uh, reinforcements to start coming from the American colonies. As this is going on in early 1776, um, loyalist Canadians, British officers, and British Indian Department officials are working to try to play with this Indian diplomacy to bring in Indian allies to attack the Americans from the West uh, as 1776 develops, 
while they also expect a British uh, reinforcement force to come from the Atlantic into the St. Lawrence from the east and squeeze the Americans out from both sides. Um, there were there was an entire British regiment that was stationed in the Great Lakes. The easternmost company of that was actually on, uh, at the post on the St. Lawrence River called Fort Oswegatchie. And this really becomes the, the concentration point, the rallying point for these forces that, that start to gather um, to potentially attack the Americans from the West in, in the springtime. Um, the Americans get uh, warnings that this threat is developing, some more accurate than others. So um, as reinforcements start coming in, they send a lot of them up to Quebec City, but they funnel some of them off to establish a post west of Montreal uh, at what will become Fort Cedars that is about 30 miles-ish uh, west of Montreal. And these troops are uh, taken from New Hampshire and Connecticut, New England troops that have just been formed to serve as reinforcements for what's going on, on in Canada. And they're put under the command of a, a veteran New Hampshire officer, Colonel Timothy Beadle. Um, this Indian force assembles at Fort Oswegatchie um, on May 12th. We got about 40 uh, British soldiers, 11 Canadian loyalists, and 160 native uh, warriors from uh, mostly from the Six Nations, but also a significant Mississauga uh, element. And they descend the St. Lawrence River in canoes and boats to head towards Montreal. On their way, they stop in the Seven Nations village of Aquasasne and pick up 50 more warriors. Um, so uh, the overwhelming uh, majority of the, the this force that's about to attack Fort Cedars is Native American. Um, and then sort of describing the battle in a nutshell, the uh, 18th of May, this force uh, attacks Fort Cedars. Uh, after just a couple days of fighting, the Americans surrender. Uh, and there are four, almost 400 prisoners of war now in the, the British and Canadian hands. And then um, there's some other engagements that take place after that, but that gets us up to the point of Fort Cedars. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about that surrender, because you make the case quite convincingly, um, and you're not the only one. In fact, it was the case made at the time that the Americans should have held out longer than they actually did. So why was the fort surrendered and what happened to the officers who were held responsible? Uh, so um, talked about Colonel Timothy Beadle. He's in charge of this command at Fort Cedars, but he's also responsible for the, this whole region west of Montreal, um, which is many miles uh, of river. Um, and there's this key other responsibility he has, which is Indian diplomacy. He had served as the Americans' lead Indian diplomatic agent in the fall 1775 campaign. When he returns with these new troops in 1776, the regional commander, who is uh, General Benedict Arnold, uh, tells puts him essentially in charge of Indian diplomacy. Um, and Colonel Beadle's problems really, besides the scope of his command, really start when he becomes inoculated for the smallpox. Smallpox is devastating the American army in Canada at this time. He's seen what smallpox can do during his French and Indian war service. So he makes the decision to get himself inoculated, even though he's going to take this command uh, 
west of Montreal. So he's sick at the time that Fort Cedars is being built. And he's still sick just before the Battle of Fort Cedars when the Ganawaga Indians call him to a council in their village, which draws him away from Fort Cedars. Um, the Ganawaga Indians were concerned about the collapse of the American army and wanted some uh, comfort from Colonel Beadle, some uh, to get some confidence from him. So they had, they'd called him uh, there in part to talk about that. So he, Beadle is there when the actual scouts come to report that the enemy is has been seen approaching Fort Cedars, long expected, but now they've finally been spotted. And these are actually Ganawaga Indian scouts. So Colonel Beadle has got a decision. Does he go back to Fort Cedars to help fight the battle? Or does he go to Montreal to get more reinforcements um, to help fight the battle? And the Ganawaga Indians, by Colonel Beadle's account, convince him that he should go to Montreal. So he does that, gets reinforcements started, and then he starts to join them. But his bout with the smallpox is overwhelming, and he can't get more than a few miles out of Montreal before he just falls out and is essentially out of the battle from there. Uh, he'll eventually be court-martialed uh, for this, uh, for not being at his post, um, and loses commission, but he's allowed to return to the service the next year. And, and my take is essentially, they needed a scapegoat, somebody uh, of his stature that would be held responsible. And the fact that he wasn't there was good enough reason, uh, good enough justification to hang uh, him as uh responsible for that. But what really the key player in this is his second in command, Major Isaac Butterfield, who has left at Fort Cedars. He's a man with few military qualifications, seemed to have been chosen for his role as much because he was a popular guy in his community, lived in a key point where he might be able to bring in recruits. So he's prepared for, for the demands and responsibility of battle. Interestingly, uh, in the couple days before the attack happens, he seems to be actually pretty active in preparing for the attack. But once the reality of Indians outside his force walls appears, uh, he seems to have frozen. So uh, less than two days of fighting, he's taken minimal casualties. There's been no breach in the fortifications, which would traditionally be a point where you might consider a noble surrender. But the British have planted this seed in his mind by sending a couple flags of truce, trying to convince him to surrender, warning that the Indians will massacre the Americans if they don't surrender early and before the Indians have taken many losses. And so in the background of this, um, it's not explicit, but it's clear. Clear. Many accounts say that Butterfield was terrorized. And so the ghosts of Fort William Henry and these massacres that happened in the French and Indian War seem to be playing strongly on his decision-making. So he keeps junior officers from being too aggressive in their defense. And despite their protests, he decides to surrender on the second day, even though it's pretty confident that reinforcements are on the way. Um, the only defense for his decision is possibly um, concern for the many smallpox uh, suffering soldiers that he has under his command. They had been the first amongst those massacred in these French and Indian War massacres, and he has a good part of his force that is currently suffering from smallpox. But really, there's no military justification um, for what goes on. So there's a surrender that he arranges with the, the British commander, Captain George Forster. Uh, and they essentially agree to a, a peace on European terms. Uh, guarantees to protect American lives. The British soldiers do do their best to protect the Americans. But there is a lot of Indian looting, at least, that goes on once the surrender has happened.
So tell us about this. What happens after the surrender? And why do you say in the book that it, quote, underscored the essential differences between Euro-American and Native American concepts of war? So uh, the, the experience at Fort Cedars with the surrender between Butterfield and Forster looks a lot like uh, the French and Indian War precedents at Fort William Henry and Fort Oswego and other forts where the Indian allies may be along, but the European colonials make a, a deal that shortcuts what the Indians might be looking for out of uh, the battle. Uh, on May 20th, the day after Fort Cedars is surrendered, uh, the reinforcements that Colonel Beadle had put in motion finally start advancing on the last leg to get to Fort Cedars. And they're about four miles out when they are ambushed by Indians and Canadians. So an American force under uh, Major Henry Sherburne of about 100 men meets these uh, Indians and Canadians. The Americans were unaware that Fort Cedars had surrendered. Um, and so this battle breaks out. And where Fort Cedars was more like those other fort battles in the French and Indian War, this engagement, uh, this ambush on the 20th of May, looks a lot more like another major um, milestone in the French and Indian War, the Battle of the Mon Monongahela, Braddock's defeat, where uh, the Indians ruled what's going on. Uh, there's no chance for the British and French or British and Americans to sideline uh, what the Indians are going to do. So there's a, uh, a short battle. Uh, the Americans stand, try to retreat, get cut off. They start running out of ammo. And so they attempt to surrender by throwing down their arms. But there are no surrender terms to protect the, the Americans once this is done. So the Indians follow their own customs. They're what are considered uh, by the Americans uh, to be atrocities. There's uh, killing and scalping of uh, wounded and dead. There's plundering of the surrendered soldiers, including stripping them essentially naked, uh, probably just leaving them in uh, their undergarments, and claiming of captives. Uh, so Indians are rushing to, to claim individual soldiers as their own uh, captive. And once this initial battlefield chaos happens, they take their, these captives back to Fort Cedars, where they start to stew about the losses that they have taken in this ambush. They're really very small losses. They've lost one killed and two wounded Indians, but one the one killed was a Seneca chief who apparently was highly respected. So the Indians start to prepare to ritually conduct revenge killings on some of the American officers in particular. Um, so much like the Battle of Monongahela, um, you see how the Indians can take uh, control of the battlefield after their victory. Um, and really highlights that difference in uh, the two different lines of parallel warfare. In this case, the British uh, officers at Fort Cedars do appear to have intervened in, in time to prevent the killings by buying captives in some cases. They offer up an ox as an exchange for ritual killing, which has, had been done a few times in uh, previous wars as a way to uh, channel off that desire from the Indians. But in the chaos, many of the Americans were convinced that three or four of their compatriots had been killed. And uh, Major Sherburne, who was the leader of this force that had been ambushed, came away convinced that one of his men had been uh, killed by fire torture or, or roasted, in his word, although there never really doesn't appear to be any historical evidence to support that allegation. 
Well, and what's really fascinating, um, obviously in the book, you get to go into more detail than answering my questions now. Um, but what comes out really clearly with that detail that's really interesting is that um, it's not that the kind of the two key things are happening and get conflated, right? You've already outlined for us the what parallel warfare is, what Native Americans wanted out of um, violence and kind of what the norms and um, cultural expectations were. Um, and then, of course, we probably are more familiar with what uh, the Euro-Americans would have expected out of something like this. Um, and so this is a really good example of kind of these of norms clashing, of cultures clashing. Um, and then most importantly, how the Euro-colonial interpretation of these actions kind of adds an extra layer to it. Um, this idea of because uh, the Americans could see some dead or wounded with their clothes stripped off, that immediately in their heads kind of jumped to this idea of torture, which um, from your examination of Native American um, war norms that we've already discussed, in fact, there is no real leap between those two things. Um, and that kind of added an extra layer to this idea of a massacre that may or may not have been particularly related to actual facts on the ground. Um, and you then trace this because it continues. It's not just about what happens in this day, in this place. In fact, it goes all the way back to the American Congress, um, who then later on take up this idea of the massacre at the Cedars by the Native Americans. And in fact, as you detail, come up with the Cedars resolutions. So can you kind of tell us about how this event sort of ends up in the kind of popular political imagination and sort of moves even further away from maybe the actual historical facts? Yes. So um, there's definitely this uh, collective memory expectation that once Indians enter the war, there's going to be things like the massacre that the Americans believe has happened at the Cedars. And so in Philadelphia, 500 miles away from what's going on at the Cedars, uh, by early June 1776, the Continental Congress starts to get word uh, that this battle has gone on. It's, it's a shameful defeat. But then there's also these alleged atrocities. So uh, Congress forms a committee to investigate uh, what's gone on. And this is 15th of June before the Declaration of Independence has even uh, been uh, put out. And so Congress decides that they need to respond promptly to the this uh, first major use of British Indian allies and the somewhat expected atrocities that they believe have, have come out of it. So they, they investigate, gather reports from the commanders and uh, the Major Sherburne, who was uh, led the ambush uh, fight, he is sent uh, to Philadelphia to provide testimony. And amongst the things he describes are this alleged uh, roasting or fire torture of one of his soldiers that he didn't really see, but other soldiers saw, but the soldiers who told him about it were eventually taken away as captives by the Indians. So he doesn't have names really, but he's pretty sure it's happened. Um, so Congress really feels a, a need to act before the British try to, to sideline any British attempts to do something similar in the future. So they publish these resolutions uh, on July 10th, 1776. So Six days after the Declaration of Independence, they're publishing these resolutions that detail their version of what's gone on. There are a lot of errors in what they understand had happened. Um, 
But the key point is they demand British accountability. They want the king to turn over Captain Forster, who has let these uh, alleged atrocities happen, um, wanted to deter continued use of Indian terror. And, and amongst the, the resolutions they make from uh, their version of what's gone on, they say that the Congress says that they are not going to turn over uh, British prisoners of war that had been nominally exchanged in a cartel um, to uh, compensate for the Americans who were eventually released. So um, kind of taking a sideline here, the, the whole scene of the feeder, Cedars militarily ends where there's a showdown uh, between Benedict Arnold leading a, a counterattack against the, the British and Indians that remain. The prisoners' lives, American prisoners' lives are in great danger because the Indians are more likely to kill them than to let them be recovered. Um, so Captain Forster and General Benedict Arnold reach a prisoner exchange cartel, the, the bottom line of which is the British and Indians will release their prisoners to, back to the Americans in exchange for an equal number of British soldiers to be returned later because the Americans don't have that number of British prisoners of war on hand in Canada. So the, the resolutions make an argument that the British didn't fight honorably. Uh, if Governor For or Captain Forster is not held responsible, then the Americans aren't going to meet their obligations uh, by returning British prisoners. Um, so that's, that's the shocking element as far as the British and Canadian loyalists are concerned. Um, colonial newspaper uh, accounts come out about what's gone on at the Cedars, and many of them publish these resolutions. So the Americans have a pretty consolidated account of what happen happened at the Cedars, even if it's not necessarily completely accurate. And that helps uh, rally the American cause at this point where they've uh, just declared independence, clearly portrays the king as uh, villainous, somebody who would employ savage, quote, allies. Uh, against the good American people. And the British and Canadian loyalists, once they start hearing of the, the re these resolutions and these accounts, uh, act pretty quickly to rebut them. Um, as one of my review readers pointed out, this seems to be a, a unique case where the British were pretty ahead of the game, propaganda-wise. Um, so they have a couple American officers as hostages. They get them to write letters saying that the British treated them as well as they possibly could have. They published those. Uh, one of the British officers that's involved in the, at Fort Cedars publishes a detailed account that is really much more accurate than what the Continental Congress understands has, has gone on, and it's really effective pro-ministry propaganda. Um, but the Cedars remains this hot point in discussion until middle of the next year, 1777, when uh, there's another campaign and invasion, British invasion from Canada with Indian allies that starts creating a lot more incidents. And those now have more resonance and the, the Cedars kind of falls uh, to the back as far as points of contention go. But the issue of the prisoner war cartel lingers for the most of the war um, with the British still demanding every time they talk about prisoner exchanges that, you know, this set, this part of the ledger needs to be settled. Eventually it's kind of quietly written off. So, what then do you think um, we can learn from this piece of history that is often forgotten? How does it deepen our understanding of the Revolutionary War? Uh, I think it clearly demonstrates the importance of, of Native Americans in shaping uh, the Revolutionary War, even before it started. Um, there, there were 
political diplomatic efforts going on before the first shots had been exchanged in in the Revolutionary War, and then their uh, political military interventions and in some cases military absences uh, directly steered the flow of military operations in Canada and the the New York New England uh, borderlands in this critical first year of the Revolutionary War. By looking at the Indian battles in Canada uh, in the fall of 1775 and at Cedars as the first Indian battles of the Revolutionary War, it really gives us different perspectives from the traditional historiography, which is focused on battles that happened later in 1776 uh, down in Carolinas and Virginia against the Cherokees, or uh, even look at 1777 campaigns as, as the first real Indian battles. But by moving that timeline to the left, we get different perspectives on the Indians' goals, motivations, particularly with uh, regard to the Seven Nations and the Six Nations' concerns with the St. Lawrence trade. And the, and the deep dive uh, that the Cedars provides really shows the complexity of this Indian factional act of neutrality mm. uh, that was almost completely indecipherable for decision makers at the time, including those who are you know, the most expert on Indian diplomacy, and thus have, have been very difficult for historians to interpret in the, in the meantime, and really serves as a correction to um, binary or monolithic interpretations of the Indians were on the British side or the Indians were on the American side. No, it's, it's, it's more complex than that, and, and this concept of active neutrality really helps explain what's going on, uh, why there's different groups from different uh, nations engaging both sides. And also how sort of decisions, those kinds of decisions were reached. Um, I think one really helpful detail was just the idea of, um, you know, if there wasn't a confederation level decision, that opened up agency for individual or smaller level um, communities to kind of make their own decisions. Um, That's a really helpful uh, thing to know in order to kind of make sense of um, actions that otherwise might seem contradictory. In that framework, actually, they make a ton of sense. Um, so the book does kind of have a lot of useful correctives. Um, but I wanted to also ask a bit about the kind of behind the scenes aspect of the process of creating the book. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to us a little bit about kind of your methods for this and sort of how you got all this information and put it together. Um, and in particular, if there's anything you came across in the process that was surprising to you. So I'm a, a, a rabbit hole uh, historian, like I'm sure many of us are, uh, where every time I see an interesting topic, I, I dig deep on it until I get to the point where I go, wait a minute, this isn't going to contribute to what I'm doing. So run down a lot of leads. Um, there uh, are understandably very few Native American voices captured in primary source documents. So I had to, to do a lot of reading of British and American documents uh, kind of from uh, across the grain, different filter, um, what they were saying. And one of the, the most interesting I, I found there was the British Indian uh, agent, John Butler, had a journal where he doesn't say what the Indians were expressing, but you see his pattern of speeches as he goes on and what points he keeps coming back to really highlight, presumably, what the natives' points of interest were. So that was that was one document. But the, the thing that really surprised me the most as I dug into this was the Ganawaga pro-American factions influence and contributions to what went on uh, in this broader scheme uh, around the Cedars uh, with their factional outreach and encouragement to the Americans, 
Um, they made repeated promises to provide hundreds of warriors to help the Americans even before the Quebec uh, defeat. So even before the Americans really needed help, they're making these offers. And some of these offers are coming, offers are coming from the group that is not necessarily all that pro-American. So you see the, the pro-American factions influence internally as well as externally. And uh, came across this little-known treaty that the Ganawagas signed with the Americans in uh, January 1776 in Albany uh, that promised neutrality and, and made no obligations on the Ganawagas, which is interesting because all these other American treaties with Native groups in the early, well, throughout the war, tend to make put some obligation on the, the Native group. And this one, the Ganawagas essentially promised not to attack the Americans, and that, that's the end of their responsibilities. And then a couple key documents that I came across in my rabbit hole searches. One was um, one of the Ganawaga pro-Americans, the, the, a central character throughout my book, uh, is a Ganawaga Mohawk named uh, Louis Cook, more commonly, or as I refer to him, Louis, Louis Adiataharongwan, which is his Mohawk name. Um, there's actually one document where he um, probably is telling somebody else, but it's his voice, of what all he is doing in this 1775 to 1776 period, which is greatly enlightening, connected a lot of uh, dots that otherwise wouldn't have been connected. And I came across some payrolls and accounts showing that Colonel Timothy Beadle had enlisted a company of 26 Ganawaga scouts under Louis Adiatarongwin, which explains their role in being the first scouts to report that the British and the, the enemy Indians were approaching Fort Cedars. Um, and re really, I don't think anybody else had, had come across that. And the Ganawagas uh, apparently contributed hundreds of warriors um, at the time when the Americans were pursuing the British and Indians back after Fort Cedars. Um, and played a key role in uh, Council of Seven Nations Neutrality as the American effort in Canada had just completely gone to pot. And the best they can hope for is to withdraw. The Ganawagas helped secure this Seven Nations Neutrality that allows the Americans to, to evacuate without Indian warriors providing any great influence on what's going on. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, it's always great. I'm sure you have this as well when you're um, kind of up to your ears and hunting something down in a rabbit hole and then you find the document um, that kind of clarifies things or gives you a new lead. It's a very satisfying feeling. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and this book is just out, so it does feel a little mean to ask. But now that the book is done, what are you working on now or next? So... Uh, I think I might finally have uh, found my exit out of uh, Canada without getting too far off of topics <laughs> I've looked at before. So I'm uh, exploring uh, the different Indian nations, uh, tribes that allied themselves with the Americans in the Revolutionary War. Um, I've got three anchor points right now, the Oneidas, the, the Stockbridge, and the Catawbas, who are down in the Carolinas. Um, uh, and, but uh, as I'm original, initially casting my net out, looking for other groups that may have tied their fates more with the, the Americans um, and looking really to compare and contrast their motivations and contributions uh, to the American side of, of the Revolutionary War, where Indians have typically been looked at as being 
British allies, mm. um, uh, kind of doing the initial secondary source research, um, looking forward to a point where I can be confident that uh, COVID might not interfere with my archival research before I start heading off on uh, vacations. But that's that's where I'm looking to go next. Cool. Well, best of luck with that research, um, both in terms of finding what you want and in terms of being able to actually travel to the archives. Um, but in the meantime, listeners can read your current book, again titled Down the Warpath to the Cedars, Indians' First Battles in the Revolution, published by University of Oklahoma Press in 2022. Mark Anderson, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much, Miranda, for your wonderful interview.